Thank you, Kathleen. Beautiful, beautiful song. He works everything for our good, doesn't he? That's a great promise. Amen. The um, flags are flying at half-mast in front of the church because of the tragedy that happened on Thursday when uh, 13 American service personnel lost their lives in the terrorist attack. 18 were wounded, and, uh, and among the Afghans, there was uh, 170 killed and 200 wounded. And, of course, you've heard now on the news that there's a, a constant imminent threat of another terrorist attack before we can get out. So I want you to stand with me, if you would, and let's have special prayer for those who lost loved ones and those that still have loved ones over there. Pray with me. Father, our hearts break this morning for the great tragedy that's going on in Afghanistan. We pray for those family that lost their sons and daughters on this past Thursday. Comfort them as only you can do. Give them courage and strength. We pray for the families whose loved ones <clears throat> were wounded. And we pray for healing and recovery. For them, We pray for the Afghan people, some of them believers in you, Lord Jesus. And we pray for them, for those who lost loved ones and, and for those who were wounded as well. And then we pray for those that are there now, our American citizens and our American military personnel. We pray you'd hedge them about and keep them from the evil uh, that uh, is in that place. We commit it to you. We don't understand these things. Your, your ways are higher than ours. Your thoughts higher than ours. But we lay them, these requests now at your feet, knowing you're on the throne. You're still on the throne. Nothing catches you by surprise. We know there's much evil in this world. And we pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We're going through the Gospel of John verse by verse, and we're still in chapter 19. Lord willing, we're going to finish that today. And uh, we'll, let's pick it up in verse 38. Uh, of course, chapter 19 so far has been about the cross, and now we have the burial in these last verses of the chapter. Look at verse 38. And after this, that is, after the cross, after Jesus cried, it is finished. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave, and he came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus. Ah, here's Nicodemus again. Third time we've seen him in the Gospel of John. Then came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and a hundred pound weight. Pray with me. Father, speak to us now through your word. Teach us. May our hearts be open, I ask in Christ's name, amen, amen. 
secret disciple, it is said of Joseph, probably true of Nicodemus as well. Obviously, he's a disciple of the Lord, or he wouldn't have taken part in this, in this uh, burial. And I'll explain more about that in just a few moments. Dr. Rex Rogers, who is the North American president of the Middle East Media Ministry, SAT-7, describes conditions in Afghanistan for believers after the Taliban's takeover. He says, and now I'm quoting, We're hearing from reliable sources that the Taliban demand people's phones. And if they find a downloaded Bible on your device, they will kill you immediately. End of quote. Now, if you've watched some of the news reports, some of the uh, journalists have asked questions of the administration about these things. The administration will answer, we've been unable to confirm these incidents. So it's nothing that our nation or our government yet can confirm, but these things, atrocities, are coming from reliable sources within Afghanistan. They're coming from pastors and church leaders and, uh, and Christian leaders and so forth that are telling what's going on. So if you have a, app, a Bible app on your phone, you'll be killed immediately. He goes on to say, uh, it's incredibly dangerous right now for Afghans who have anything Christian on their phones. The Taliban have spies and informants everywhere. Open Doors, which is an organization that works with families of martyrs around the world. They're an ex experts in that uh, field, like uh, the Voice of the Martyrs, a, sa a similar organization. Open Doors ranked Afghanistan the second most dangerous country in the world for Christians before the Taliban took over. Can you imagine? Before the Taliban took over with the, with the U.S. troops there, it was the second most dangerous place in the world for Christians. He says now that, uh, uh, that they are warning that the Taliban will, quote, exterminate the church. A pastor in the U.S. who works with Afghan refugees reports young Christian girls are being pursued by the Taliban. And uh, the Taliban just raided, this one report, another uh, church leader's home. The uh, U.K. Parliament says there are 228 missionaries in Afghanistan currently under sentence of death. Missionaries and mission boards are working to try to get their Christian co colleagues out of the country, end of quote. Two more. Here's a Dr. Dennison quoting another source saying that one woman was set on fire by the Taliban because they did not like her cooking. And other women are being forced into uh, sex slavery. The leader of, the, of one of the underground churches in Afghanistan said, the, and I'm quoting, the Taliban has a hit list known, uh, of known Christians they are targeting to pursue and kill. It's no longer any place in Afghanistan for believers to take refuge. 
And then he says, they will eliminate the Christian population. Wow. Can you imagine the, the fear and the intensity of living in that kind of situation? And many of these are believers. Even though, even though Afghan never promoted Christianity at all, but when the U.S. was in there, missionaries could get in, and, the, and there was an underground church, uh, and now those Christians are, are left there in this tragic, tragic place. Now, some of them may be secret believers. We have the term here. He was a secret believer because of fear of the Jews. And some people criticize Joseph for being a secret believer. But uh, it was a life or death situation, as you can see. They were planning all along to... Uh, to crucify Jesus and so it was dangerous to identify yourself with Jesus and so for fear of the Jews Joseph did not and a lot of people have criticized him for that think with me now about the Afghan Christians would you fault them if they took their Bible app off of their phone I mean would you think they were compromising or not being good Christians or something like that if they took the Bible app off of their phones? I wouldn't think that. Matter of fact, I think if I was in that situation, I'd take the Bible app off my phone. The spies who went into Jericho to spy was, was helped and aided by a, a prostitute named Rahab. She hid them from the soldiers and she lied to save their lives and God blessed her for that. God blessed her by saving her and her family in that military campaign. What about the Christians who helped the Jews during the Holocaust? They took Jews into their homes and hid them in their basements and in their attics and anywhere they could hide them to save their lives and they lied to the Nazis. To save lives. The disciples, if you remember, on the night of the resurrection, the disciples were in the upper room hiding in a locked room for fear of the Jews. In that moment, they were secret disciples too, so to speak, at that moment. The underground church in China is underground for a reason to hide from the government when when human life is in the balances things take on a different light so let's you and I pray for our Christian brothers and sisters that are in Afghanistan and let's pray that you and I will speak up for Jesus in this free country in which we live. If you go back to verse 38 now, again, I just remind you, he introduces us to Joseph and then also to Nicodemus. Look at your screen for a moment. I want to share some things about these two men. 
Joseph of Arimathea. He is mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here in John. They all tell something a little different about him, so when you take all of the Gospels together, this is what you find out about Joseph. He was a rich man. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. By the way, two of the other Gospels just say he was a follower of Jesus. They don't even mention he was a secret follower. Only John mentions that. He was a follower of Jesus, but at this point, a secret follower, or up to this point. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Not only was he a member, he was an honorable member. He was a noble member. He was a leader among them. And the Sanhedrin, of course, is the very organization, the, the very group of men who passed judgment on Jesus for him to be put to death. He was a member of that same group. You can see why he was maybe a secret disciple sitting there with the Sanhedrin all around him talking about crucifixion and, and putting Jesus to death. But the Bible makes it clear he was unconsenting to their evil. He did not consent to what they did. He was not lying. He was not uh, acting like he was all for them. He did not consent to what they did. He simply was keeping his faith in Christ secret. And then he was a good and righteous man. A just man, the Bible says. And then... He was looking for the kingdom of God. In other words, he was looking for the coming Messiah. And now he's examined this Jesus. And because of our context here, we know he came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah he had been waiting on. And the kingdom, at least the kingdom in the hearts of men and women, had begun. So here's Joseph of Arimathea. And then think about Nicodemus. We see him in the next verse. We saw him three times in the Gospel of John. And uh, no one else mentions Nicodemus. The other Gospels don't even mention him. I, I wonder, now I'm only speculating here. But I wonder if John didn't meet Nicodemus somewhere along the way. And Nicodemus was a believer John was a believer, and they began to talk about the things of the Lord, and Nicodemus said something like, you know, early in Jesus' ministry, I went to him one night. And John said, really? Tell me the details. He records it in chapter 3. And then uh, he, uh, he, knowing Nicodemus, personally and hearing that testimony was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things down in God's word though the other uh, apostles writing the gospels did not so the first time we see Nicodemus is in the darkness of confusion he said we know you come from God because no man could do these miracles except God be with him and uh, that was a very noble and insightful for him to say that, but it was still wrong. It was still eternally wrong. He was, he was not just come from God. He was God himself come to us. And that's the difference between life 
and death for eternity. So he was in the darkness of confusion at the time. And then we see him in the dawning of conviction. In chapter 7, he, ta he speaks up for Jesus in a Sanhedrin meeting with all the big shot leaders, you know, he himself being one. And they wanted to put Jesus to death. And he said, do we put anybody to death before we, we have a legal hearing? And then they jumped on him and said, uh, you don't know anything. Why don't you search the scriptures and so forth? And maybe he did search the scriptures. Maybe he was already searching the scriptures. And he came to the conclusion that Jesus was who he said he was. Because here we see him in the daylight of confession. This is an open confession that he was a follower of Christ. He... Uh, he, he would not have done this unless he made a break with Judaism and he was trusting Christ. Touching the dead body made him unfit for the Passover. But I don't think he minded because he had come to the conclusion that Jesus was the Passover lamb. And so, both these men missed the Passover because of their faith. Now, everybody would know that they were believers. So, this was their open testimony. This was their, at least for now, this was their baptism. We're going to baptize today. <clears throat> Excuse me. And baptism is saying outwardly to everyone, I'm a follower of Christ. These men were saying that by their actions here, handling this dead body just before Passover. Now, come back and, and uh, look at those verses again. Joseph, a disciple of Jesus, and uh, he went to Pilate and asked for the body. Luke tells us that he was bold in doing so. He was bold because he was coming out now from being a secret disciple to being an open disciple. And he asked for the body of Jesus. Usually the Romans just left bodies on the cross until, uh, until the, the birds of prey and animals had done their work and decay. If they did take them down, they threw them in a garbage dump and burned the bodies. But if, but if, a, if a family member could get an audience with someone in Pilate's uh, reign, Pilate's group of leaders, and get permission from Pilate or one of his men, then they could take the body and, and bury the body. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had no hope of getting the body. All the other disciples had fled except John. John had no clout with the, uh, the Roman government. But a member of the Sanhedrin. Now that's different because remember the Sanhedrin is the ruling body. That's the group that Pilate has to deal with. In our, you know, in our videos we've been watching those old guys with long beards were always, you know, the ones fussing with Pilate and so forth. That was members of the Sanhedrin. So since Joseph 
And Nicodemus maybe was in on that, but it just tells us Joseph is the one that asked the body. Pilate gave permission so they could bury the body. And uh, he gave him leave, and he took the body of Jesus. Then verse 39, uh, there came also Nicodemus. And he had a mixture of myrrh and aloes, a hundred pound weight. Some people have said that seems like too much uh, uh, aloe and, and uh, uh, myrrh and so forth, that mixture. But if you had it in four bags, you could carry it. That'd be 25 pounds each. That would be a doable thing. But knowing that both... Um, Joseph and Nicodemus were rich. Tradition says Nicodemus was among the three richest men in Jerusalem in the day. And we've already been told that uh, Joseph was rich. And so these men would have had hired servants that would carry something heavy for them probably. They probably carried those al the aloe and mixture of, of uh, herbs and so forth, carried them to the place where, where Joseph and and uh, Nicodemus wanted it to be maybe right there at the tomb awaiting and prepared for what they needed to do. Um, then took they the body of Jesus. By the way, the, the aloe and the mixture would not only be in the wrappings that they would wrap the body with, but they would make a, it would be under the body. And it would, uh, it would be like a, a bed for the body to lay on. Hence, a great amount. And I didn't, didn't want to spend much time here, but these things keep coming to mind. Uh, some of the more prominent and important people were given more uh, of this mixture when they were buried. And so this, this uh, big amount indicates uh, that uh, these men, of course, thought highly of Jesus and who he was. 40, verse 40, Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. And so they wrap the body. The New King James says, instead of linen cloth, that it says straps or uh, uh, straps of linen and or cloth. The word can be translated that way. Some of the newer translations they 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 translated either way. Some cloth and some straps. The significance there is that some people believe the shroud of uh, Turin is the shroud that Jesus had on his body when he resurrected and that's what left the image. Now this shroud is, is not material that would be wrapped it is a big, wide piece of material that went all the way across the front of the body, over the head, and all the way down the back of the body. And so this is one of those places where they debate whether the Shroud of Turin is authentic or not. Uh, 
Now, the Catholic Church, by the way, I guess I said enough to make that make sense. It, it, some people believe that there, there is a very faint image of a man with a beard on this shroud. Some people believe it's the image Jesus left when he came through the shroud in resurrection and left the image on there. Now, the Catholic Church owns this and has it displayed, but the official view of the Catholic Church is, is not that this is the uh, shroud of Jesus. The official view of the church is that it is an authentic shroud of somebody who was crucified, and maybe it was Jesus. But a lot of Catholic people are... Are, uh, believe strongly that this is the uh, shroud that was around the body of Jesus. Scientific dating, though, dates the shroud in the 1300s, making it impossible, even though people still debate it, and there are some other evidences that, that um, uh, maybe give a different view, but the conclusive scientific evidence is that it was in about the 1300s. But anyway, this is one of those places where that's debated. Didn't mean to spend that much time there. And, um, and so they took this linen, and they would have wrapped the body of Jesus. They would have put the spices on the linen strips. And uh, I think I said straps earlier. Strips, anyway, strips. And they would then wrap the body in these linen uh, strips uh, all over the body. It would look kind of like a mummy. Now, this is not mummification, though, nor is it uh, embalming like we would do today. This is just wrapping the body with spices, and the spices would simply keep the odor of decay away for a short amount of time till the body could be, uh, uh, you know, in a, put into a tomb. And so they wrapped his body and then laid him on a kind of a bed of those spices as well. Verse 41 says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, a tomb, wherein was never man yet laid. We know this belonged to uh, Joseph, as we're told by the other Gospels. There laid, there laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, or that is because it was the day before the Sabbath. So this was on Friday. And, uh, and they did it. They used this tomb because it was uh, near nigh to hand. That is, it was very close to where Jesus was crucified. They didn't have to carry him very far. Now what makes that important is that uh, Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and the Sabbath would start at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Again, if you remember, the Jews start their day at 6 o'clock. We started at midnight at 12 o'clock. Uh, but they started at 6 o'clock. So if it's Friday at 3 o'clock, when it gets to 6 o'clock, it turns Saturday, the Sabbath. So they had a short amount of time to do all of this. Think about it. They had, to, they had to go get an audience with Pilate. They had to get permission from Pilate. And then the other gospel writers tell us that, that uh, Pilate was surprised that Jesus was dead and, and acted like he didn't believe it. So he sent a messenger 
to contact the centurion that was in charge of the crucifixion to find out if Jesus was really dead. That took time. The message came back, yes, he is officially dead. And when Pilate got that, he turned the body over to uh, Joseph. And so, the, uh, the sepulcher was close by and, and handy. We should confess Jesus openly and not be secret disciples. These men now were coming out from that secret disciple attitude and were now professing <clears throat> that they were followers of Christ. What makes these verses important about the burial? Because the burial is part of the gospel. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 4, we're told what the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried and that he rose again. Burying him was part of the gospel because it confirms that he was truly dead. This was not, this was not done, you know, by a group of wild people out in the wilderness somewhere. This was done under the supervision of the Roman government. And Pilate had to make sure Jesus was dead according to his experts before he could let the body go. And so it's important because we know according to the experts and standards of that day, Jesus was dead and then placed in a tomb. I find it something that uh, Dr. Warren Wearsby described. I found, it, I found it interesting. I try to kind of describe it for you as best I can. He's speculating, he says, and, and he says it's pure conjure. But he wonders why Joseph, being a rich man, would would have a, his tomb for himself right next to a place where they crucify people. His wife and children coming to the tomb would have to listen to people screaming in agony and pain. So why would he purchase a tomb that close? Warren Wearsby speculates that because he had become a believer sometime earlier in the ministry of Jesus and, and was a secret disciple, that he had put two and two together. And he knew that Jesus was going to need a tomb. And he bought this property and, and had this tomb cut out in the stone, knowing that he was going to put Jesus there. He and Nicodemus would have even known the time that Jesus was going to die. They had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was becoming the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus at the beginning of his ministry that he would have to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. This spoke he concerning the crucifixion. So Nicodemus, thinking about all of that, 
his other Jewish scholar and they're talking about it and putting it together and they know Jesus is going to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so they know that the Passover lamb is, is killed at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So they speculated. Again, this is Warren Wiersbe's uh, speculation. So they, they um, knew he would die at 3 o'clock and they would only have a short time to get all this done. So they were on ready. They had the, they had the uh, tomb uh, cut out. They had all the spices they needed brought in and waiting there in the tomb. And they were waiting maybe somewhere just outside the tomb listening. And when they heard Jesus say, It is finished. Then Joseph went into action. He goes to, and gets his... Uh, uh, audience with Pilate gets permission and uh, that takes some time because they have to send the messenger out and so forth and I'm sure he was looking at his watch <laughs> his little sundial you know sticking up off his wrist he, but he was he was looking at his watch and thinking man they're taking a long time getting that report back we've, we've only got from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock and now it's you know 4.30 we're never going to make it but they get the permission they take the body down then they have to carry the body to the tomb then they have to wrap the body and all of that before 6 o'clock I think that's a possibility I like the thought of it and then they laid him in the tomb and there he was the creator of the universe and everybody else went about their business the world goes about their business Dr. John Phillips writes this about the things that may have happened that evening when Jesus was put in the tomb we can imagine how things probably went Pilate went home to supper to make a report to his wife of the day's events. Annas and Caiaphas proceeded over their respective Passover feast. Can you see them? <clears throat> Having put Jesus to death, now they're celebrating and laughing with their family. And John sought to comfort his mother, his new mother, Mary. The body of Judas lay forgotten. The other disciples hid themselves from the public eye. Herod and his men of war mocked and laughed. Did Sarah, uh, did Mary of Bethany have a sense of expectation in her heart? Did a Roman soldier try on his new robe? And another try to wash the blood of the Son of God? off his spear a thief a criminal opened his eyes in heaven and another one opened his eyes in hell the world spun round angels watched as some of their number went down to earth to prepare for the dawn of a new day 
Praise the Lord. The video is two minutes long. Let's watch it together. This was done to make the scripture come true. Not one of his bones will be broken. And there is another scripture that says, people will look at him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph, who was from the town of Arimathea, asked Pilate if he could take Jesus' body. Joseph was a follower of Jesus, but in secret because he was afraid of the Jewish authorities. Pilate told him he could have the body, so Joseph went and took it away. Nicodemus, who at first had gone to see Jesus at night, went with Joseph, taking with him about 100 pounds of spices, a mixture of myrrh, and aloes. The two men took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the spices according to the Jewish custom of preparing a body for burial. There was a garden in the place where Jesus had been put to death and in it there was a new tomb where no one had ever been buried. Since it was the day before the Sabbath, and because the tomb was close by, they placed Jesus' body there. He's in the tomb. Next Sunday, we'll come to chapter 20, the resurrection. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus and his love for us, and for the cross, and for the resurrection, and for salvation, free and full. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Now the young people, no, not in this service. <clears throat> That's in the next service. I'm going to show you a few more slides while they're getting ready and uh, about the baptism. Introduce you to the people who are going to be baptized in the second service. So if you look back, uh, let's go to the first picture of baptism. Gentlemen back there, please. Here we go. Uh, you know, people have been baptized for the last 2,000 years since the time of Christ. This is an old picture I found on, on uh, the internet uh, that was from 1956. If you look at it closely, you can see that there's a bridge across the creek. People are standing on that bridge. And then they're standing right on the edge of the water. And right in the middle there is, is uh, three people. And they're baptizing. And... Uh, uh, this is a group from Kentucky, and the pastor's the last person on the far right. He has a town about this long, if you look at it closely. And, uh, and that, was, uh, that was, as I said, in Kentucky, in a creek nearby. And, uh, I mean, that's a lot of children there. This must have been right after vacation Bible school, or it was uh, maybe people waiting for a year. Sometimes they used to just... Some churches baptize once a year. And, but that's a wonderful looking group. Here's somebody baptizing on the other side of the world. And uh, here's a young one being baptized outside in a pool. And uh, so some are young and some are old. This woman is 96 years old. She's getting baptized. Oldest person I ever baptized was 86. This woman's 96. Uh, But I, f I found one even 
older. Here, this man is 99 years old and following the Lord in believers' baptism. Isn't that a beautiful sight? So young or old, and some are solemn, and some are excited, and uh, it's just a beautiful thing to see. Some are in unusual circumstances. This is in Afghanistan. And, uh, and, but all of them are truly beautiful, as this one is here. When people follow the Lord in believer's baptism, declaring to everyone they are followers of Christ. Now here's the ones today that are going to be baptized in the second service. We're going to uh, baptize J.T. Willett. And uh, J.T. Was, was saved when he was 10 years old right here at Gospel. And uh, it was in the junior church. And uh, it was in 2004. And so we rejoice with J.T. And he is, uh, will be baptized in a few moments. The second one is... Uh, Catherine, Catherine Witchy, she's 11 years old. Her parents are Brent and Carol Ann, and she trusted Christ as Savior after VBS, and uh, she talked with her dad, and he prayed with her. That was this year after VBS. And then uh, the third one is Morgan Cates. Can y'all put her, can y'all do that while I'm reading, or do I need to do it? Y'all put her up there, please. There you go. Morgan Cates, thank you. Uh, that's uh, David and Courtney's daughter, and she was saved on June the 12th, and she's eight years old. And uh, she, had, she had been speaking with her parents and asking questions and told her parents that she wanted to receive Christ, and her, da her dad, David, prayed with her to receive Christ. The next one is Brantley Corn. Brantley is six years old, and uh, his parents are uh, B.J. and Mandy. And uh, uh, Brantley was saved on July the 18th after our last baptism service. He saw the baptism and uh, began to ask questions about it and so forth and uh, talked with his parents. And, uh, but he prayed on his own uh, in bed that night. And then he went in and told his dad that he had prayed. And his dad said, would you want me to pray with you and he said no that's okay I've, I've already prayed and so uh, he was sure had assurance and uh, then they prayed together about other things and talked about it of course and then and then we have Kenzie Totel she's nine years old and Brandon and Leah are her parents and and Karen and Pastor Paul are her grandparents uh, that's one of our grandchildren and uh, she trusted Christ as her Savior three years ago at age six in the van with her mother, Leah, who prayed with her. They were discussing it and so forth, and they prayed together, and she received Christ. And then we have Kaylee Millen, who's seven years old. Her parents are Pete and Jessica. And uh, her grandma prayed with her to receive Christ while they were riding in her grandma's car, Elizabeth Millen, who's also a member of our church. And uh, uh, thank God for grandparents, amen? And for a grandmother like that. Kaylee had been asking her grandmother questions and wanted to be saved. This happened a year ago. And then the last one today is Keegan Totel. And she is five years old. And this is Brandon and Leah's daughter. Also Karen and Pastor Paul's granddaughter. 
she trusted Christ as her Savior last week, she and her big sister, Kenzie, were talking about salvation and the gospel. And now Leah, the mother, was sitting here listening to all of this. They were outside. And uh, she listened to the whole conversation. And she thought a few times about maybe breaking in and explaining some things. But she said, really, it was just going so well. She just kind of let them talk on and listened, you know. And so finally, Keegan said she uh, wanted to pray and receive Christ. And before her mother could intervene, she just prayed her own prayer right out loud and received Christ into her heart. That was just last week. And uh, so... Uh, we praise the Lord for all of these that are following uh, him in baptism. Following the Lord in baptism. We're going to sing a, a one quick verse. Stand with me, please. If you'd like to come for prayer, you certainly can do that. So as we sing, but let's sing and rejoice in God's goodness. And rejoice in these that are following the Lord in baptism. The cleansing fountain. Open wide for all my sin. I obey the Spirit's wooing. When He said, Will thou be clean? I will praise Him. I will praise Him. Praise the Lamb for sinners slain. We give Him glory, all ye people, for His blood can Thank you so much. You may be seated now. Pastor Jason's going to come with some closing uh, prayer requests. And uh, then I'm not going to be out in the lobby for the next few weeks because, again, it kind of slows the movement down and crowds people up more. And with COVID getting worse, I'll be right over here. Now, today I won't even be here after the service because I've got to meet in a few minutes with some parents uh, of the children being baptized. And, uh, but uh, on following Sundays, I'll be in my little corner up there. And if you want to talk to me, you certainly can do so. If you're wearing a mask, I'll wear one because I've got one in my pocket. Pastor Jason. All right, just a couple of announcements and prayer requests. Our, 